Good morning. My name is Edith Stritsky. This morning our scripture reading is from the book of Mark. We are in a sermon series called Safe and Holy. Please follow along in your Bible or use the screens. I will be reading from Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 22 from the New International Version. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud and honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all of these things I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go and sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. At this, the man's face fell, and he went away sad because he had great wealth. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. My name is Peter. I am one of the pastors here. And uh, if it's all right with you, I'd like to start this morning with a quick word of prayer. Would you bow your heads with me? Father, we are gathered here in your space and in your time, and we look to you and we ask for your Holy Spirit to minister to us. Reveal yourself to us in a way that will change our life. We bring our whole lives, our hearts and our minds are open to you, and we look to you for the things that only you can do. Do it, Lord, today in this time and space. In Jesus' name, amen. We are, uh, the sermon title is Safe and Holy Part 2. We're in the midst of a several weeks long series called Safe and Holy. And last week we introduced the words safe and holy. Many of us have heard the word safe. We've heard the word holy. We know what they mean, but together we bring it together and we ask the question, well, what does that mean? And today I want to show you the relationship between the word safe and the word holy. We said last week that human nature's bent to be, is to be either safe or holy. But that in Jesus, safe and holy were brought together. That he was both a safe and holy person. One of the things we noted as evidence of that is the broad spectrum of people that Jesus was able to draw. You think about our church right here, just our church. We don't have to think beyond this. We can literally look around and ask the question, how broad is the spectrum of people that feel compelled to come to church? What are people going through in their life? What is their walk of life? What do they look like? What do they feel like? Who are they? 
And we can compare that to Jesus' ministry and recognize that our church, our ministry, unlike Jesus' ministry, is much narrower in, in spectrum. And we ask the question, why? Why was he able to draw such a broad spectrum of people? People came to him from all walks of life. Men, women, sinners, saints, sick, healthy, young, old. By day, by night, they flocked to him. How? And we recognize that that is an amazing and very unique ministry that Jesus had. And I submitted to you last week that one of the key reasons so many flocked to him is that he wasn't just safe or holy like his contemporaries or like churches today or like people today, but he was both safe and holy at the same time. And to experience someone who is able to be both safe and holy is to want to follow that person for all the days of your life. And that's what we see in his ministry. So today, what is the relationship between safe and holy? Uh, this is my dog, Bear. We've had him for about uh, four and a half or so uh, Years. He's actually three and a half years. He's four and a half years old. And he's a 16-pound cockapoo. And he has zero fight in him. He has absolutely no ability to live if we kicked him out of the house. He will be picked off immediately. And um, we had a reminder of his... Uh, dependent nature this week. Um, one of my daughters and I, we were walking him on our usual walk around the block, and uh, we were on the far side of the street, but a about, my guess is maybe 20, 25-pound uh, Jack Russell Terrier broke through the electronic invisible fence and ran at Bear, and this happened so fast, and just started attacking him. And uh, Bear got bit maybe five or six times, and it freaked me out. My first response was to try to protect uh, Maddie, my daughter. And I wanted to make sure she was far away. So I put myself between the dogs uh, and Maddie so that Maddie wouldn't get hurt. And then what I tried to do is uh, pick up Bear. But I couldn't pick him up because this dog would just add him and not let him go. And it was just like a dog with a bone, I guess. Uh, except it was Bear's bones. <laughs> And the owner, who happened to be not the owner, but somebody, uh, a grandmother who was dog-sitting this dog and was helpless and was so frightened by this whole thing, was not able to even leave her driveway, just watching from the driveway and yelling, pick up your dog, pick up your dog, pick up, because she's feeling so bad at what's happening. And I'm trying, and I yell at her, I am trying to... And my adrenaline is going. My heart is pumping. And then I'm having this thought, how can I carry myself in such a way that if this lady ever walked into church, she would not be shocked that I'm a pastor? That thought quickly passes. My adrenaline pumps it out of my brain. And I do the one thing I know I can do without getting my hand bit is I take my foot and I remember all the karate lessons I took. And I kicked this dog the min with the minimum force I thought necessary. The first kick, the dog gets kicked off the dog. Maybe 
five or six feet away from Bear. But immediately, before I can do anything, he's right back at Bear, grabs a hold of his front leg and just will not let go and is swinging Bear around. Then I think, oh my gosh, so I, you know, uh, 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 cock back the uh, foot, kick again a little bit hard, and this time maybe 10 feet. And then he comes back and is right at him, and I cannot find time to pick up my dog. And then I think, okay, I'm going to just pull my, put my all into it. And I punt this dog about halfway down the block, and then I put myself between the dog and bear, just enough time for me to pick up bear. And my heart is going, <gasps> and bear is going, <gasps> and the lady's going, <gasps> and Maddie's got this look of shock on her face. And we're all just in disbelief at what has happened. Needless to say, I was not thinking good thoughts about this lady or this dog. And walking away from this dog, I'm just going, oh my gosh, Maddie, if this dog ever, ever motions towards Bear again, I will stomp on his skull and make sure he's dead. And then Maddie looks at me horrified. I said, Dad, what's wrong with you? I said, you don't understand, Maddie. I cannot let this happen again. And Maddie says, but he's a dog just like Bear. And I said, it's dog on dog, baby. Like, this is, this is National Geographic. Like, my adrenaline, adrenaline is pumping. I think about this story, and it just was emblematic to me of asking the question, what do I bleed when I'm cut? When the pressure is on, when it's stressful, and I'm surprised, and I'm in survival mode, who am I? What do I become? What instincts are released in me? This is the amazing thing about Jesus. In his most stressful times, when his life was literally on the line, when all of his friends had abandoned and then they had betrayed him, when he had no one left, not even his own father. And he said, God, why have you forsaken me? When you cut Jesus, he bled poise. He bled forgiveness. He bled love. He bled wisdom. He bled Focus on the mission. He never lost sight. He never had a moment when he thought, who am I? Why did I do that? I don't know what came over me. Well, nothing ever came over him. Through and through and through, he was both safe and holy. Everyone around him all the time experienced Jesus as both safe and holy. And here is what we learn today between the relationship of safe and holy. That in Jesus, what we see is that safe results from holy. It's not safe and holy. It's safe because holy. That safe is actually proof that someone is holy. So two things we will learn today. First, who rejects whom and who accepts whom? By the way, I did a little grammar research into how to use who or whom. It has to do with the object versus the subject. I'll let you figure that one out. Okay? 
Who rejects whom and who accepts whom? First, who rejects whom? Start with verse 21 and 22. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. So the question is here before us. Who rejects whom? And there's an irony here that I want you not to miss. First, what we see is that this rich young ruler, as the theologians have uh, nicknamed him, he's a man with power, he's a man with resources, and he's a man desperately living his life in what we would call today deficit. He has everything, especially in Jesus' time, in a very politically charged, religiously framed society. This rich young ruler lived his life in total deficit. He wanted so badly to be loved, to be valued, to be secure, to be respected, to be good, but not only good, but to be good enough. And he comes up to this apparently authoritative rabbi type. And he wants so badly for Jesus to look his way and say, My dear son, because of all that you have and because of all that you are and because of all the striving and the work you have done, I approve of you. I accept you. But he doesn't do that. Jesus looks at him, and in spite of everything this young man has worked to qualify himself for, not because of, but in spite of it, Jesus looks at him and loves him because he had already accepted him and already loved him. And then this, it's this young man who realizes that he has no room in his worldview and his modus operandi for grace. He rejects the giver of grace, the person of grace, and he walks away dejected and sad because if he were to say yes to Jesus and the love that Jesus offered him, it would mean saying goodbye to the only way he knew how to live, which is to earn love, to earn acceptance, to earn security, to earn goodness. You know, we talk about grace a lot because this is church. And it's easy for us to nod our heads in grace and say, yes, grace is so good. I want grace. I need grace. But let me tell you, that is not the human response to grace. Only on the surface do we like grace. But in reality, we despise grace. Because if grace, that means that we are not good enough, that we cannot be good enough. It means that no one is good, no, not one. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. 
Why does it have to be grace? Because there's no other way. But we don't want grace. We would rather have control. We want to play some part in our own salvation. We don't want good. We want to be good enough. And so we reject grace on a deep level. Grace is an indictment, my friends. You and I, we do not love grace. We actually hate grace. We despise grace. And we reject grace just as this young man was doing. You understand? Jesus looked at him and loved him. Jesus saw him, his whole life story. He saw all of his insecurities, all of his endeavors, all of his life's efforts in just one deep, penetrating, messianic glance. And this rich young ruler, so-called rich young ruler, felt it. This piercing vision of Jesus into the soul and center of who he was. He was shaken to the core. He said, I I can't deal with that. I can't have you see me for who I am. I need you to see my efforts. I need you to see my name dropping. I need you to see my resume. I can't have you see me. And so he looks down. His face falls and he walks away sad. I can't give up all this wealth. It's mine. Mine. I've earned it. I've authored it. I want to be the author and the perfecter of my own life. I've written so many chapters. You're asking me to just throw all that away? I can't do it. And he walks away sad. Here is the thing that we learn from the rich young ruler that he rejects Jesus, not Jesus rejecting him. And here's the other lesson, that the rich young ruler, his whole life was centered around literally minutes and all of his money and all of his relational time, energy is spent operating out of this deep, deep deficit that he felt about himself. This love deficit, this worth deficit, this value deficit. This is what he knew. Okay? And here are some really sad, powerful, hopefully convicting truths about deficit. First, deficit, the nature of what deficit is, is it permeates and repurposes All of the endeavors and interactions in your life. Somebody is thirsty. You want to give them a cup of water? Your deficit will permeate that act. It will permeate the heart behind that gesture. And you are no longer acting out of an altruism or a desire to Love somebody. It's not because you see somebody and you love them. But underneath that, on some level, your deficit causes you to repurpose that act. And now you're hoping to be a good person by giving this thirsty person a cup of water. And you're hoping that they tweet about it or put it up on Facebook. You're hoping that you become a better person by making this person better. 
It's no longer about the good of the friend you have just loved, but it's about your own lovability as a friend. You may not be aware of it at the moment, but at the core, you have been tainted by your own deficit. Because the nature of deficit is to permeate and repurpose conversations, gestures, relationships, your whole life, long before you know it. You look at your wife. Yup, I will repurpose you. I will repurpose all that I do for you and all that you do for me. You look at your children. You look at your neighbors. You look at your job, your bosses. Those you manage, you look at your country, you look at everyone all around you. Every moment is yet another opportunity for your heart in deficit to try and fill some black hole. Tell me, look into your life, understand your own motives if you can, and tell me that's not true. Have you ever had a pure moment? Second, deficit, therefore, makes you, is at the core of what makes you an unsafe person. Because you're no longer seeing the world the way you ought to see it. Everything and everyone is an opportunity for your own deficit. And you will use people. You will abuse people. You will forget people and remember people. Give, take, receive from people as a way to fill your own deficit. And that, my friends, makes you unsafe. It's the shepherd who looks at the sheep and is always smacking his lips because he's hungry. How would you like to have a pastor who stands here and preaches, but really it's just about the preacher and it's not about you? How would you like to have a mother or a father or a friend who just looks at you and it's like those old cartoons, they just see a roast chicken when they see you? If you are in deficit in these very crucial love opportunity moments, you bring to the table your own wounds, your own needs, the judgments that others have passed over you. You bring to the table your self-consciousness, your self-loathing, and ultimately your self-centeredness. Another way that I like to think about it is that deficit causes you to have extremely short nerve endings. You know what that means? That means you look at people and you can't understand why they read the news. Who cares? My life is fine. Who cares about the person who's lost their whole arm? My pinky has got a splinter in it. And I can't have nerve endings that go beyond my own pinky. And I'm obsessed with my pinky. Who can I use to alleviate my pain? Who can I use to stem the bleeding on my own finger? Who? What? How? All about me, me, Me. Are you in need? I think I can meet that need for you if it will somehow give glory to me.
short nerve endings. Another way that I experience that in myself is that deficit causes me to be a reactive person. Because I'm always in need. I'm always feeling less than. And so any criticism you might have or anything you might want to, what? What did you say? How dare? Because I'm at every moment fighting for my life. My life is in danger. You are tapping in and these moments that should be innocent or neutral now are supercharged with my own self-condemnation and needs and wants and purposes. This intense story that I had with Bear has reminded me that I am in survival mode. And when I'm in survival mode, I will kick you. And if that doesn't work, I will punt you. I am unsafe. Because I feel unsafe. I am in need and I will meet my need. Second, who accepts whom? This is a great, great question. I wish I had this answer when I'm interacting with people. Jesus says to this guy, why do you call me good? Do you realize what's happening here? Jesus is saying, you're just a person in deficit. That is to say, you're a person, you're a human being. Why are you even thinking in terms of good? Who told you you're allowed to use this category good? Who accused you of being good? Why are you thinking in terms of good? No one is good. Only God is good. You know, that's like somebody who prefaces their statement by saying, you know, it's not that I'm God or anything. It's like, what? Who told you you were God? Who was mistaking you for God that you felt the need to qualify whatever you're going to say? Or somebody says, well, I'm not perfect, but what? Who accused you of being perfect? Why must you start your sentence with, I'm not perfect, but I'm not saying I'm perfect. You are saying you're perfect. You are saying you're God. Jesus is saying, why do you call me good? Simultaneously, he's saying, by the way, I am good because I am God. But why are you, the human being, thinking about this category? Could it be that you see yourself in this category? Could it be that you believe in this category for yourself by your own efforts? That somehow you can go from the bad box to the good box? Here's the other way God is saying it. Jesus is saying this. He's saying God alone is good. That is God alone is holy. Here's what the word holy means. This is a word that's used most often to describe God. Uh, It's also a word that he uses to describe himself. It's one of his uh, rare self-descriptors. And so here is what I think the word holy means in our uh, vernacular. Okay, first, it's the word independent. God being holy is completely, absolutely, and entirely independent independent by himself, sufficient. 
God doesn't have needs that he's looking to anything or anyone for. He's not unhappy if I'm not, nope, I'm not part of the equation of God at all. He just is completely true, happy, determined, all by himself. He is completely independent. He's not going, oh, I was going to do something, but I didn't know you were, nope. He's never surprised. There is never plan B. There's not even a plan A because the plan of God cannot be thwarted, Scripture says. In his redemptive power, he's able to accomplish all. His word never returns to him empty. It always accomplishes the purpose for which it was sent. He is entirely powerful. This is God being independent. Somebody once asked me the question, does God know the future? I said, why do you ask? He said, well, maybe if my iPhone is in my pocket and then there was a gun fired and then the bullet hits the iPhone that happened to be in my breast pocket and it saves my life. Did God know that the bullet was going to be fired and therefore he caused me to put my iPhone in my breast pocket, which I usually have in my pants pocket? And I'm like, well... We can have a theological conversation or we can decide, you know, at some point he knew the bullet was going to hit you. Because he's fast. If he doesn't know everything, he's at least fast. So I suppose, yeah, he knew the bullet was going to hit you. When did he know? We can talk about that. But yes, he did know. Maybe when the gun left the chamber or maybe when the, you know, the, um, the holder of the gun, you know, determined already that he was going to, Who knows? That's God. He's not dependent on some foreknowledge to do something because at any moment he can do anything he wants. If God is dependent on some knowledge that's dependent on time, but the Bible says he's outside of time, he created time, what do you mean does he know the future? The future, the past, these are kind of uh, murky things to God. He's independent. Okay, second, he is distinct. There is nothing in the world like God. You can't compare him to anything. This is the whole purpose of the book of Job, is God wanting to teach Job that I am distinct. He, he lists all the creatures of creation, all the phenomenon of the earth. He says, is anything, have you seen, can you, can, can anybody, nope, nothing, no one ever, because he's distinct. And relatively speaking to us, he's completely different. My ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. God is different than you. What do you think about this? Nope, God doesn't have that thought. God has way deeper, more perfect, more wise thoughts than you do. Do you love your child? Nope, God has way more love for your child. Do you love God? No, you are worshiping God. God loves you more than you could ever love him. You can't give back to him as if it should be repaid. And he gave it to you in the first place, Scripture says. Completely different than us. Therefore, he is immutable, meaning he cannot change. Because if he could change, it would mean that he is imperfect. There is some completion that had to happen, but he's already complete. Immutable. Yesterday, the same. Today, the same. Tomorrow, the same. He cannot, will not cause his love for us to change. It will not. He is love. 
Therefore, as a holy God, because he is so perfect, he is all the time, 24-7, 365 for all of eternity, he is free, not encumbered by some nature or some uh, unforeseen circumstance or some emotion that overcame him. He is at all times able to see and love. He's able to see, determine, judge, and in wisdom, love us. And this is what Jesus did. He looked at him and loved him. This is an amazing thing, people. You live your own very small, provincial, intricate lives that you'd be embarrassed about if everybody knew how much you cared about so many little things. And he sees it all, and he loves you, and he's engaged with you. He listens to your prayers and your concerns, and he's meeting you where you're at. He has perfect insight and sight over you. And he loves you. This is what holiness does. This God who is holy is safe because he is holy. He's not worried about some happening in this world. It doesn't hinder him from loving you. He's not worried about his own emotions overcoming him. He doesn't ever think, oh, I'm so sorry. I don't know what came over me. Nothing ever overcomes God. Ever. That's why he's safe all the time. If I share a secret with him, from my shy soul, I spill a secret and God doesn't say, oh my gosh, Peter, that is just too much for me. I did not know that you could have such a dark thought. I cannot help you. I can't even be in the room with you. This is a soul proper and I'm walking out. You know, you need some space. God doesn't say that. Because he's not threatened by my secret. He's not appalled. He's not surprised. He's just right there looking at me, loving me because he is holy. And this holy and safe God, he says to us in 1 Corinthians, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, that you, my friends, are not your own? For you have been bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body. And 1 Peter 1, 15 to 16 says this, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. You be safe and holy by being holy yourselves. How? How can we be like God? How can we be perfect? How can we be distinct and different? How can we not be a slave of the moment, but have the capacity and the wherewithal to love all at all times? How do we do that? How? Is it possible? For us, holy means slightly different things. Okay, this is how scripture describes our holiness. Number one is that we are sanctified. This is where we get the word saint. Saint, contrary to popular belief, does not mean that you are a good person. This is how we use it. Somebody is sort of a morally upright person or you're able to be altruistic, then we say, what a saint. No, 
Sanctified just means God has repurposed you now. You were fallen and you fell into your own purposes and your deficit was repurposing you to meet its own black hole needs. But God now is taking you back and he's going to set you apart for his own purposes. So a holy vessel, like literally a vessel, a dish, was a dish that wasn't used for any other purpose except for God's purposes. He says, that's what you are. You are no longer a slave to your deficit. You are no longer in survival mode. But you, my dearly beloved ones, whom I bought at a price, you are now mine. That's the first thing. The second thing is that you have been set apart for a mission and a purpose that is beyond the purpose that your deficit has for you. You no longer have to be a slave to meeting the deficit needs of your life. You're not out there now trying to be loved. And if somebody criticizes you, they may love you less, but who cares? Which leads us to the third meaning of holy it means that your allegiance is 100% to God at any given moment at the drop of a hat you will obey God you will honor God you will do what he wants you to do even if it looks and feels and judges like it like you're hating somebody else so Jesus says you have to uh, hate your mother and father brother sister wife even yourself if you're gonna follow me meaning your allegiance is just to me to me. And relative to that, it may look like hatred to other people, but it's actually the only way to be a loving person is to be loved by me first. Your allegiance has to be to me. Your purpose, you exist for me, and you're going to be compared to others who are not sanctified, you're going to be totally different. So these are the words that holy means for us. And so Galatians chapter 2, verse 20 says this, I have been crucified with Christ. And that part's really crucial that you're dead. Because if you're alive, you're driven by your deficit. Okay? I have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. It's not that you are trying to be holy like God is holy, but it's that you are dead. And now God is the author of your life and it's his holiness that is overflowing through you. It's not that you see the other person and you love the other person. It's that he sees the other person through you and loves through you. I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me, when you are already loved, when you are already accepted, when you are no longer in deficit, you are then finally able to see others and love them. And all the rich young rulers who come to you to be loved, who want to play the game with you, you're able to look at them and you're able to love them. And it's not about you playing the game or winning the game. It's not about tit-for-tat scorekeeping, but it's about loving them. And if you love them, they may reject you. They may walk away sad, just as this man did. 
But it doesn't matter because you are not dependent on their approval anymore. You're not dependent on their liking you. Because you are a servant of the Lord. You are sanctified. Your purpose isn't to be loved by them. You are already loved. Your purpose is to be a vessel of his love. That you can plant in them the seed of the love that has now set you free. You are safe to others because, precisely because you are holy, sanctified, set apart, different. I don't know what the alternative is out there. If I am not safe because I am holy, the alternative is I am driven by my deficit. When holiness is self-achieved, self-acquired, self-originating, self-maintained, self-perpetuated, if holiness is from you and earned by you and maintained by you, then you are unsafe. Because you will look around and all you will actually see are opportunities to fill your own deficit. The gift of God through Jesus Christ is this love that only he can give. This is the gospel. This is what the Christian church is all about. As we conclude here, I want to share with you uh, my parting thoughts about this interaction that Jesus has. You notice in this moment when Jesus is relating to this so-called rich young ruler, just how poised and how focused he is, really how holy Jesus is. You know, as a, as a religious leader myself, I understand a little bit the position Jesus was in. This guy that came to Jesus, he was a really high potential donor. Like he was wealthy and he was moral. He probably would have served the church because he was already serving the church. He would have volunteered. His tithe checks would have been huge. It could have solved all of the budget problems, all of the budget deficit problems. Fiscally speaking or emotionally speaking, he would have just been a name I would have loved to drop. But yeah, this guy, I know he's a politician. He's just a ruler of sorts and... You know, he comes to my church. Oh, yeah. No, it's that kind of church. I would have been on my knees catering to this guy. And here Jesus says, like, I love you. <laughs> and this man rejects his love. And Jesus is heartbroken. And he's heartbroken. But it's okay. His stuff, Jesus' stuff is never spilling over. Jesus can't be manipulated because he's not in need. And he's focused on loving this person rather than getting love from this person. And Jesus is able to be self-giving rather than self-getting. And to this young man, Jesus was safe because Jesus was holy. Let me end with a verse I want to read to you from John chapter 14, verse 27. It says this, My peace I leave with you. 
my peace I give unto you, not as the world gives I give unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Would you bow your heads with me? Father, we are reminded this morning that you do have a peace that the world cannot give. That you have a love that we can never extract from the world. Try as we might. God, set us free to be holy, just as you are holy. Fill us with your love. Apart from our works, apart from all of the ways that we try so hard. We confess our sins that we have been using people and opportunities subtly or explicitly or implicitly or even unbeknownst to us. And yet none of that has ever come close to satisfying us the way only you can. So I pray you would do that by the blood of Jesus, by the infilling of the Holy Spirit so that we can overflow to those around us, that they might experience the love of God through us, that we might be safe and holy vessels for you. We look to you, God. Save us, help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.